This is the Unstacked Startups Podcast, where we have real conversations with tech founders, leaders, VCs, and early employees of top technology companies. This is Elon Sachs. Maya, it's such a pleasure to have you on. How's how's everything today? Everything is great. I'm in sunny New York City in the peak of summer heat, so everything is good. I can't complain. It's either hot and humid in the summer, or it's freezing cold in the middle of the winter. So uh, we'll fight the pain together, I guess. Um, but uh, be- before diving into this, um, I want to give the listeners just a little bit of a high-level background on yourself. Um, so Maya, you're the founder and driving force behind Spice Capital. Spice is a venture capital firm known for its progressive approach to investing and dedication to supporting uh, amazing entrepreneurs and diverse startups. Commitment to diversity is a cornerstone of your work, influencing not just your investment choices, but the broader tech and finance industry as well. And before launching Spice Capital, you gained considerable experience in the field of, of venture capital at 35 Ventures the investment arm of NBA star Kevin Durant. And I understand you honed in on your investment acumen and began to shape your future in the VC landscape there. Although there is an interesting investment that I understand you made even earlier than that, which maybe we'll get to later in this conversation. Um, But honestly, honored to have you here. And, And maybe a good way of starting off is, who's Maya? Who's Maya Bakai? That's a big question. Who is Maya Bakai? Because I like to think I'm very complex. I'm not just one one thing, but um, I can, you know, I'm happy to jump into my background. So I was, um, I was born in Miami, which is a lot of people are surprised to hear that, but that's, that's where my parents chose to raise our um, very Indian family. And I was born there. I have one brother. Um, childhood was very typical of what you what you would um, expect from a first-generation immigrant family, like, you know, um, very strict parents, very high expectations. The one thing that was really unique that my parents did that I, I think I give them a lot of credit for is they always told us to be different. Like my mom from a young age said, hey, you know, you might go to school and you might not have the best bag or the coolest hair, or you might not be the prettiest girl, but like you can always impress people with your knowledge and your your ability to think outside of the box. And I think my parents just kept beating this down in us. Like you always have to think about how to be different. Like in our, our birthday cards and graduation cards, it was like, be different, be different, focus on that. So I think I've taken that to heart. And I think everything I've done in my life has been kind of with this, and, and I'm privileged for sure. Like I went to a really good school. I got really well educated and I had people always supporting me, which kind of allowed me to take more risks and think about how to always differentiate myself. I think if you don't have that foundation and good support system, you might not be able to take those types of risks. To have went the way that you've, you know, the route that you've taken, which is entrepreneurial and in investing and in very much a white male driven sort of sector, it's an inspiring one. You certainly have lived up to, um, to different in in the greatest way. So well, I, I think that's really curious. If I could double tap on, you know, your, your upbringing, are there any other lessons or values when you think about your 
your family, coming from an Indian background that you carry with you into your work today? Um, what what comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, my I think a lot of the the immigrant values are the same, like Indian or not. It's like you, I think part of being first generation or part of immigrating here is like our parents came here so we could have better, bigger opportunities. Um, you know, like one of the things that they always told us was my dad used to always be like, are you giving 110%? Like that was just the baseline. It wasn't 100%, it was 110 Um and it was kind of this mindset of like, if you really do, if you're really coming at something with a pure heart and you're giving 110%, there always there obviously needs to be a luck element in the way, but you can figure out anything. Like nothing can really hold you back. And so um, I think the combo of like working really hard towards something you're authentically passionate towards um, combined with be really different is like a very good recipe. And, and I think also... Um, yeah, just like seeing things that I'm reflecting on now as an adult, seeing the way I was raised, where it was really community first, like family and our society, like our Indian society was such a big part of my upbringing. And now in today's world where everyone talks about community, like as this major buzzword, um, I look back to like, what was actual community? It was like this collective force that we all force, we were forced to do, um, but like it has so many benefits and it makes you feel really good. It makes you feel like you belong somewhere. It makes you want to com compare yourself to others in a positive way where you like kind of learn from them and grow from them. It gives you role models. Like there are all these things that when I think back to like our current adulthood and peers of mine, especially I live in New York, like in a big city, that is missing. That's like a core thing that's missing. And so I reflect on those experiences a lot these days. I know that a lot of the companies that you invest in, the entrepreneurs you support are also very community-driven type companies. And it's interesting that you've in some way maybe naturally get gravitated to um, that niche within tech. Um, and your dad talking about 110% being the baseline. Um, one of my mottos I talk about with my team is always always be the hardest working person in the room. I'm always surprised at how many people don't like subscribe to that life philosophy where it's like, just do the bare minimum. Um, I think there are different camps of people and it's like very clear. You can read through history, like who wins and who doesn't. You, you kind of, there's no way to get around putting in the work is what I've just learned. Like you can try to short it catches up to you. Maybe pivoting a little bit. Let's Let's talk a little bit about what your perspective has been breaking into this, you know, the tech, the tech scene? I think it's um, the way I think about it is really, it's twofold. It's bottom up and top down. I'm trying to get, make as much impact as possible. The top down approach is, well, I'll start from, you know, whenever you think about an industry or a trend or an idea, you have to go to where the money comes from. And in the VC world specifically, there was a stat from last year and it was one or 1.3% 1 of the total amount of funding raised by VCs went to women, female-led funds. Wow. So like to rephrase, it was of 165 billion raised for VC funds last year, 
3, 1.6% went to female-led funds. The rest were male-led funds, which means that the people that are like me sitting there making decisions with capital, the, the teams that are making those decisions are mostly male, like 98% male. So that's the top down and that's the reality. And then you look at, and these were all things I investigated before I started Spice. Then you look at the founder side and you say, okay, in 2022, women-led teams got 2% of venture funding, total venture funding. And so there's a gap on both sides. My philosophy is to make any sort of change in the world, going back to the community point, you have to have some sort of like, you have to give people a feeling, like feeling is what drives people to take action. And for me, what I really wanted was female founders in my fund, um, female investors in my fund, female technology enthusiasts, or just people who had some money to spare who wanted to take risk to be in my fund, because essentially I wanted to expose them to what the latest new things in tech were, right? I wanted to expose them to these new trends. Um, and so what I did for Spice for my first fund is the average, you know, the average check size and minimums that people put for funds when they're fundraising that GPs set are usually like 100K, 250K. So right there, you kind of nix out a bunch of women who generally have, you know, make less, which is a whole separate thing, or you nix out some of the younger investors who may, may have 15K to throw in, but not 150K or 250K. So the first thing I did was say, okay, I'm going to reduce the minimum. So for any female, any person of color, someone who doesn't get access to venture as an asset class, you can put in whatever amount you want. That was the first thing I did. And I did that specifically so that some of those folks, as they read my investor updates, as they learn, they, they follow my newsletter, as they follow the journey of Spice, they can become power users of the emerging trends, because my job is to spot emerging trends, fund founders building there. If I can then actually connect future users and future power users to that capital who don't look like 98% of the funding, straight white males, then all of a sudden this next batch of products and next batch of companies being built will have almost like a feedback loop that's more representative of what the world looks like. You're right. A feedback loop of people with different backgrounds who may not have come from the traditional prototypical, you know, white male background. Now you get different types of companies that are built that are, you know, um, that no doubt will be incredible. If you don't have women at the top that are making the investment decisions, they're likely to miss out on really good opportunities that affect on the female side, like the other 50% of the population. It's because most of Silicon Valley ignored these companies. They just didn't, they don't have the mindset. They don't have the tool. They don't have the empathy. They don't have the, sh the shared experience to underwrite the, and take risks on these types of companies that are amazing businesses in many cases. On both sides of the equation, the founders aren't getting funded enough. And then the VCs aren't getting funded enough. My role is let me do my part and get as many women, people of color, people who've never been exposed to tech, part of the spice ecosystem as possible. I want to show them returns. If you make returns off of some new innovative technology, you're now going to be way more likely to then go angel invest yourself. Like I want my LPs to keep investing. I want them to keep 
paying it back forward into the ecosystem. And maybe if the best performing deal in Spice is led by a female founder, then all of a sudden, the maybe the people who really were scared to back females are now like, wait a second, let me pattern match and look for attributes that other female founders might have that Maya identified in Spice. And so I'm really like, I really, really broke it down and tried to figure out what is the way for me to make change long term? Yeah. And going back to what you were talking about, yeah, I mean, historically, VCs, angel investors, tech founders, often early employees, technical employees are often, they look a certain way and come from a certain background. Um, and the more spice and flavor and differentiation that we can add to the entire tech ecosystem, I think all boats will rise and everybody will be better off for it. And it's just simply the right thing. It's just the right way to go about it. In today's world where, you know, anyone can access any information on the internet, like it's kind of this wild west and we have there's just been so much opportunity unlocked. I think it's a shame to still be operating in an old mindset and a archaic mindset of a gatekeeper mindset. Um, and I just think that I lean into everything that might be different. I have this ability to, by leaning into what makes me different and special, I have this ability to create a true edge around early stage investing, which I think a lot of people search for edge or alpha and they claim like we have this proprietary deal flow, whatever. That's all marketing, you know, like the real proprietary deal flow is if a founder calls me and tells me something is going on in their company or they tell me that, hey, I'm thinking about my next fundraise or, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, splitting up with my co-founder right there, like the trust and the communication and the empathy is what gives me all of my edge. And I don't think, um, I don't think many people realize it's really that simple. It like comes down to human to human um, communication and support. That's it. I mean, in many ways that makes total sense, right? I mean, you're investing spice capital is often most of the time investing at the earliest stages of an entrepreneur's or tech startups life cycle and they're you know it's chaotic and they need somebody to lean on and if they have that you know um if they can resonate to someone like yourself who can empathize with what they're going through they're they're going to trust you maybe just a follow up question if you think about yourself you know how has your identity as a woman of color of color shaped your experience in the VC world? Yeah, I think, I mean, like there's just a general bias when I'm fundraising. That's the truth. It's much harder for women. And then when I see my female founders, it's way harder for them. It's just like, no one wants to be the first check into a female founder. They always, even if it's like two companies, exactly the same, the one that's a female-led team doing the same product, same traction, everything has an issue. And so for me, that's my edge, right? Because if I can go, if I, can, if I don't have that bias, which I don't to begin with, I can just go and objectively look at who's the better, who's the better team to build something. And the other thing that's, you know, 
not great as well as females will raise at a lower valuation. The same way females raise less capital, they'll raise at a lower valuation. Again, that's my opportunity to go spot an undervalued founder, right? Like people will underestimate them. And then it's really interesting in my portfolio, the female founders have been the first, this is like from pre-seed, they've been the first ones to turn on revenue. They've been the most the, the most efficient with their capital because they know they're like, well, we're, we don't have the same free lunch that maybe our counterparts do. Like we really have to prove ourselves. And so it makes them way better, scrappier founders. It's like they do more with less. And so, I mean, I would love to bet on that type of team, regardless of gender. It just so happens that women have to do that. They don't have an option or the luxury. Maya, getting a little bit more granular into spice and into venture capital and and startups, you know, I understand your, your upbringing, you know, learned more about your mentality and where the passion comes from and, and, you know, how you were sort of raised and how that fits within this space. Right. But I've heard that you were an investor. Your first investment was in Crocs. So when I was younger, I mean, I was in Florida and that was peak Crocs craze. I would say like there were stores everywhere, et cetera. My parents wouldn't buy me the actual Crocs. I had like the Walmart or Payless. I don't even know if Payless. The fake Crocs. Yeah. The fake Crocs. And I was like, oh, I just really want them. And then a little, when I was a little bit older, I finally got some, like when it was very much not in style anymore because it was on sale. And when I came to New York for college, I brought my Crocs because I was like, you know what? I finally got them. I'm starting over a new life. And I was really made fun of. Um, but I love them so much because I was like waiting to finally have a real pair of Crocs. And then it was funny. Um, again, it's like one person makes fun of you for something. And whenever, whenever something is contrarian, I always look into it a little bit more. I'm like, Hmm, why does everyone not like this? And so I was looking into Crocs more and I started noticing that this whole like eighties or sorry, nineties, two thousands era fashion was starting to come back into style. Like, even starting in, uh, right, even before 2020. Um, and I noticed that Crocs was one of the first brands that I saw, shoe brands, doing, utilizing this concept of a drop, where they would do these limited exclusive editions with culturally relevant brands, where they had a really popping social media presence. Um, they jumped into, if there was any anything happening in the world culturally, they would create a custom shoe around it. And I just thought like, this is so innovative for this kind of dying shoe company that nobody really wants. Um, let me take a look at this company. And then I just was, you know, studying the company and I saw that they were way undervalued, like compared to their cultural presence, like the people in fashion, the people creating these drops, the, even the people they chose to partner with, they would have had to be very in tune with what's going on in the mainstream. They partnered with NBA players kind of like right as like the, the peak of NBA and fashion took off. And like this team is smart. And so I made a very, my first very risky calculated investment where I was like, you know what? I think that they're going to have a comeback and I want to put money on this. And so I bought some shares, which was my first, um, yeah, first like personal investment ever. 
it was $27 a share. Um, and then, you know, in the coming years, quarters through COVID, that I couldn't have anticipated the, the speed of it. But during COVID, when the whole stock market crashed and everyone was working from home, I actually doubled down because I was like, oh, everyone's going to wear Crocs. And now it's all over the internet. Like it's not even early anymore. But there were no Wall Street analysts covering Crocs. Like I would try to pull reports. My brother was in banking at the time. I was like, hey, can you pull me whatever reports they have on Bloomberg? Like I want to see all the analysis. There was it was crickets like nobody cared. It was such a small company. Um, and so, yeah, it was a really lucrative opportunity. And that was my first kind of win on my own. But yeah, that's the story. And it really just firmed this belief of like, hey, culture drives all trends. Culture drives tech as well. It drives fashion. And if you have a pulse on what's happening in the culture, what's going to be part of the zeitgeist, um, you have a big advantage as an investor. And you have, it's almost like a necessary skill, I would say, not to be able to read what's going on culturally. Um, and again, what is culture really about? It's about humans. It's about feelings. Like, it's so funny that people focus a lot. There, there's, of course, a baseline, um, you know, there are baseline principles that make a business healthy, right? It's like, what are their margins? How does their, what's their business model? Where are they sourcing from? There are all these things that you have to do. But if all of those are equal, what differentiates someone? It's their brand and Crocs won on brand. And for me, it firmed my, this thesis I've created for Spice called cultural arbitrage, which is really just about, you know, identifying opportunities before they hit the cultural zeitgeist. And figuring out what those elements are that turn a business into maybe a commodity or just a normal service that has a lot of competitors into something really special. What a cool story with, with, yeah, the Crocs investment. Um, and maybe this is a good opportunity as you think about the entrepreneurs that you've worked with, the entrepreneurs you've invested in, the investments that you've made to, maybe share some advice, some, some learnings to, to either current tech founders or people who want to found a startup are, are you know, from your experience, are, are there some common mistakes that come to mind? You've seen tech founders make, how could they avoid these pitfalls? Maybe we start there. You know, I've been exposed to the tech ecosystem and the venture ecosystem probably since 2015. So I'm not, and as, as an intern, you know, in college, so it's not like I'm Bill Gurley, but I've seen enough, I've seen enough um, early stage founders go from idea through execution. And I've also seen a bunch of early stage founders have a good idea and watch them just fail, which is very heartbreaking and tough. Something that I'm, I'm really pushing people to think about now, especially when they say, hey, I have this idea, I want to start something. There's a lot of folks that think it's this glamorous thing to be a founder. And I will say that maybe the low interest rate environments the last few years, there really actually was, if you were, you know, if you had logos on your resume, you worked at XYZ big tech companies and you had something of an idea, you could get funded. So there was a argument to be made that, hey, if you're decently smart, you have a decently good idea, even if it's a copycat idea, there's someone that will give you capital and you can quit your job and go do it. And I would call these like the lifestyle founders, people who just want this. I don't know where it came from, 
yeah, I have no clue where this came from, like this being the the North Star, but people just doing that for the sake of it. 99.999% of those companies fail. They don't make it because when it gets hard, there was no why for them. Like you have to have a why. Um, so I think like the number one is before you go and say, I want to raise a venture backed company or I want to be an entrepreneur. So why are you doing this? And I think that that's the number one question that I think a lot of younger or first time founders don't honestly answer, you know, like they don't honestly answer it. I think on the, on my side, on the investing side, in terms of what I'm looking for is I look for this founder market fit. You people talk about product market fit to me at the early stage, what's most important is founder market fit. So if you are a founder that, or if you're just a person, sorry, you don't even need to be a founder yet that worked in an industry or your parents had a cleaning services business and you work there after schools or you help them out with their bookkeeping and you realize, hey, no one's done good software for this vertical. I'm going to go build a company like you understand the pain point in and out. You're going to be you actually have an edge. You will be the only person, the best person to build that. Right. Because you really understand there is founder market fit versus a Silicon Valley like Stanford grad who's never worked in cleaning services, who's going to win, like who's going to be able to communicate with the customers, who's going to close deals, who's going to know what futures to build. I think like it's, it's this bottom up approach of I really, really understand something or something's really bothering me about an industry and no one has found a solution. Those founders tend to do um, tend to have an easier time company building in general. There's also the founder archetype that has a very big vision where it's like, I think the, the world will look like X, Y, Z in the future and I want to build it. That's a different archetype of founder, which is it's a harder success path. You need a lot more capital because you're doing something really net new normally. And um, you need to be able to be a really good salesperson because you have to convince a bunch of people uh, who don't even know what your vision is yet to come join you. And so, you know, for me, it's like, if you are thinking about starting a company, which bucket do you fit in? And if it's neither, if it's a third bucket, which is, I think it'd be cool to have a company. I have some light ideas. Don't do it. Join a company, learn, get some subject matter expertise in a vertical where you are the only person that can build this. Cause that will be your, your best shot at building something successful. A lot of people think they want or think they have the idea of this massive, large scale unicorn company, but their idea actually is pretty small. And sometimes the investors catch it in the diligence and those founders aren't able to raise. But more often than not, the founders almost trick themselves or convince themselves that there's a market for something that doesn't exist. And so that's been a challenge, especially um, as we recover from the drunken fundraising environment of the past few years as people sober up and realize, wait a second, some of these big ideas on the investor side, they're realizing these big ideas may never get as big as we thought. And on the founder side, they're realizing, hmm, even if I owned 100% of this market share, I would only make $4 million a year. I'm never going to grow into those shoes. And so being self-aware is the most important skill you can have as a founder and being brutally honest with yourself because 
you'll have so many yes men and it's so culturally you're put on a pedestal as a founder that it's very rare that people will give it to you straight. Um, so if you're not self-aware yourself, you're in trouble. And I feel like it's not necessarily the buzzword when you think of a founder of a tech startup, I don't know, you think of gritty, passionate, I mean, you do hear self-aware maybe here and there, but not on the same level. And what a what an amazing insight. And just to touch on what you were talking about earlier, like, yeah, I mean, tech entrepreneurs get this mojo in some ways of being rock stars, right? And in many ways, probably most of the time, that's misleading. And I mean, you're an entrepreneur. You've started Spice Capital, your your fund. You know, I've I started Stacked Search Partners a decade ago in helping venture back tech startups hire. And you know, both of us are entrepreneurs, and both of us have had many tough days. You know, um, and I think that's par for the course. It's not all rainbows and sunshine. And I think that's an important message to yeah. to get across. So yeah. Definitely. I think that's definitely something to check. And it's, um, yeah, like to, to really double down, being self-aware is important because one, it lets you as a founder know your weaknesses and know where to hire versus do it yourself. So it starts all the way from the founder. It starts when you're, it's important when you're talking to customers. If you have this thesis on what the world looks like or what your customer looks like, and they don't actually use your, their, your product that way. And you, when you're, doing customer feedback, you're not picking up. If you don't have good customer empathy, most of that is because you're not self-aware, like, you know? And so you need this awareness that is so, so important um, because the the bad decisions compound, you know, you your early team construction could be bad. And then you start to see like things compound over time. And if it's bad, it compounds in a bad way. If it's good, it compounds in a good way. You talked about customer empathy there. I mean, what an important one as well, right? And having the empathy to put yourself in the customer's shoes and understand what is working, what is not working, what's going to stick. And also just general empathy. I mean, for your employees, you know, for your stakeholders and as a business owner, as a tech founder, there's tons of people who are coming at you and want something from you and you almost need to slow it down and uh, empathize with the different parties and be self-aware and empathize at times probably with yourself to make smart decisions. Um, that's great, Maya. That That brings us just about to the end here of our conversation. Are there any, any parting words or anything else that comes to your mind that you might want to add? Something I want to talk about is honestly you, like you have shown me the importance of talent, which I think is the number one, the number one requested ask that my founders ask me is, can you help me with hiring? And I think there is this, it's very similar to how fundraising was done. There was this hasty approach that a lot of founders took over the past few years. They raised money really quickly and immediately just hired from, you know, they would like tweet about, tweet a job posting and quickly hire, grow their team, increase their burn. And all of a sudden what's happening today, right? It's 
let's say like halfway through 2023, maybe two years from like peak bull market, you're seeing the effects of those decisions, the hasty hiring. You're seeing that people have really bloated teams that are not performing. And if you are an early stage founder, we talked about it, like all bad decisions compound that you are just, people just have so much dead weight on their team, or they have people that are not aligned with their mission. And the most important thing, if you are building something net new is you need your whole team to be gung ho. Like you need to become some, this uh, kind of like cult leader towards your team as well. You can't afford a bad apple. You just can't. You hundred percent. Yeah, you lose three weeks. You lose a customer. Boom, 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 boom. Negative spiral. Such an important element to getting going in the earliest stages. So um, that's great, Maya. Thank you so much for for all of your insight. It it was truly appreciated. It was a it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Unstacked Startups Podcast. If you enjoyed this, you might enjoy our free monthly newsletter by Unstacked Startups called FounderMail. Sign up for free at foundermail.substack.com. This is Elon Sachs.